0: Can't hand you a business plan, but we can make you business-wise. So sit back and learn to make stacks with the Octopus of Enterprise.
1: Hi, Diana here, and today you find me at the deck. I've just done my morning commute into work, and on that commute, I actually listened to our latest episode of the Octopus of Enterprise. That's figuring out your finances with Lecky Presley. I absolutely loved chatting with her all about the life cycles of finance, pensions and passing on your wealth to future generations, which got me thinking about generations in family businesses. And since this week is Family Business Week, what better time to get a couple of family business experts together to talk about exactly that? And this is what they had to say. So today we're going to talk about family business, finding out what makes a family business, the size and shape, pros and cons, and the mindset for keeping it in the family, often across the generations. And who better to discuss this with than Nick Linney, Chair of Linney, and Matt Allen, Associate Professor in Entrepreneurship at Babson College. Welcome both. Welcome to the Octopus of Enterprise. How are you both doing today?
0: I'm doing fine. Thank you very much good day so far. And you've
1: only just started yours, Matt, because you're in the US.
2: Yes, 8am this morning. So just getting started today.
1: Indeed. So thank you for getting up early. Well, maybe you did get up at this time or even earlier every day, but thank you for joining us so early in the morning. Um, Personally, I need a couple of cups of tea before I uh, come on the podcast first thing. Um and I have to say I know we haven't got vision on our podcast but Nick I'm just fascinated by the amount of books you have behind you
0: Well I haven't read them all but uh, uh, they're sort of books that have come to me through various uh, people in, in my family but uh, as our family business originally was a bookshop in 1851 uh, I've maintained uh, a great love of books and uh, although our business is now almost completely digital business um I still think paper is very sexy. It's a lovely medium. You can carry mm. it around. It doesn't disappear. And uh, it's got some sort of permanence about it.
1: Yeah. And and a smell that you don't yeah. get from digital.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, is there a favourite book that is on your bookshelf behind you?
0: That's a tricky one. Um, not really. Uh, I think it's wonderful reading what people write about from both my hobbies and uh, my business interests. I love family businesses, which is why I was happy to come and uh, take part in this podcast. But there are some sensational um, writers from different people like Sir John Harvey Jones to the book about Steve Jobs. They're just great books. And if you want to learn about the trials and tribulations of business, uh, plenty of people have written about them.
1: Absolutely, yes. And before we turn this into a book podcast, I think it's about time we got into today's topic. That is family business. So I'm going to start by asking what might seem like a pretty obvious question, which is what makes a business a family business? I mean, Nick, you mentioned that your business started out as a bookshop and it's evolved and changed, and now you do digital marketing and design. I'd love to hear what that journey, that transformation of Linney was like. We love an origin story here at the Octopus of Enterprise. So what do we mean by family business, and how does Linny still embody that today?
0: Well, without getting too technical about it, I guess family businesses are not publicly quoted stocks. So that's one of the big differences in the UK. They're usually owned by a family or components of a family. I know a family business with um, 1500 family members in it, and I know family businesses with one, two or three people in it. So the shares, stocks, whatever we like to call them, are not publicly quoted and they're not publicly tradable. I guess that's the sort of main thing that makes a family business. Then you've got the sort of story, as you're saying, the origin stories. I'm fifth generation in our family business. I'm a holdings guy now, so I'm not operational. Um, And that's all part of the journey of the maturity of a family business. So it's now run by the sixth generation. And we do beautiful things with word spaces, pictures, and numbers. So we've always been fascinated with data from being a bookshop to a printing business, to a newspaper business, to where we are at the moment, which is a digital marketing business. And what we're looking for our data to do is to confirm a decision you've already made or change your mind. We do that on behalf of our customers.
1: Oh, wow. Nick, we should have had you on the uh, how to pitch your business episode because really allowing for growth, encompassing everything that you do, beautiful things with words, pictures and data. I just love that. So that's a top tip for anyone who's starting out to learn, to not be um, bounded, I suppose, by how you describe your business at the beginning. And Matt, is that definition of family business that Nick gave similar? or different to how you would describe a family business in the US?
2: So you asked an interesting question about what makes a family business. I think very similar to what Nick said, this idea of private business, but I'm going to come at it from the academic perspective because I would say ownership and management, meaning of course the family has enough ownership that they have control, but also that the family is taking an active role in managing the business. That could be that they're working in a CEO type role. It could also be that they're influencing from the side. And then the last piece, which to me, I think is the most interesting, is there's an intent to pass that business to the next generation.
1: And so um, I know that you're studying family business in the US, Matt, and also looking at, you know, how you support family business. Um, You mentioned succession. Let's look at what it's like being part of that family business. And as sixth generation Nick, you know, you're now saying you're not actively involved in the running of the business, but throughout your time within the business, how was it? And what's it actually like being part of a family business?
0: Well, on April the 17th this year, I clocked up 50 years in our business.
1: Wow. Congratulations. It literally
0: has gone like a flash. And uh, I certainly subscribe to find a job you love and you'll never work again. So I had a really great time through the business and typically we would be operational in it for around 25 years and then non-operational for as long as you keep your marbles together. (laughs) So um, it's been fantastic. And uh, it's uh, terrific to see Matt as part of this podcast because the early part of my life was spent trying to find advisors who understood family businesses. And the difference between now and then is absolutely staggering. They are completely different to publicly quoted stocks. So, you know, in our business, five years is short term, 12 years is midterm, and 25 years is normal term. So, uh, and in the UK, the Institute of Family Business refers to that as patient capital. So the reason we're here is because we, being the shareholders, we can reposition the business because we're not reporting quarterly and actually repositioning cost money. But we almost ban discussion of financial years in our business. The great God in our business is market position.
1: So a lot of... Founders that I meet talk about their ambition is selling shares and to then sort of have an exit strategy, which is a very different animal from what we're talking about here. Because as soon as you do that, as soon as someone else has control of parts of your business, as soon as shareholders are involved, they're looking at you all the time as to what you're doing. So, is one of the things you're saying then that being a family business, you have some freedom in how your business goes about what it's doing?
0: Well, once you get a lot of shareholders and once you get, if you like, institutional shareholders, um, they're looking at the dividend a lot. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> and if you don't produce on the dividend, then you become uh, much less interesting. So, yes, we have an awful lot of freedom. And in 2011, our what we call tier two revenues, so revenues from businesses we've started, passed our tier one revenues, which is revenues from where we came from, income paper so to speak. So all our digital and marketing and all that kind of thing is now the biggest part of our business due to having uh, fantastic non-family people in the business. Our job as a family is to create a fabulous working environment.
1: And I think it's great to hear that working as a family, Linney's managed to create a collaborative, innovative environment, not just for its employees, but also your future generations can contribute improve, progress the family business, because sometimes you hear about tensions between the generations in terms of direction and leadership. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Matt, have you discovered anything in your research around that sort of mindset between generations that you want to bring out
2: Absolutely. I actually grew up in a family business. My first job after graduating from college was working in that business with my father. And being a faculty member now, it's clear that I did not stay. That was not because of any disagreement between my father and I, but just that I had different dreams, different ideas that I wanted to pursue, and the business didn't fit. So there's certainly some tensions, a couple that come to mind, mostly related to the founder and the current leader of the business. Nick talked about openness to ideas, which is not always the case in a growing family business. Very often the founder or the current leader of the business will want to run the business the way that he or she wants to run the business without much input from the next generation. And I think the potential drawbacks of a family business in this idea of patient capital is what happens when family members will stay in a role for a long period of time. If you look at publicly traded companies and the tenure for a CEO might be around 10 years And then you look at a family business where the tenure for a CEO could be 20, 25, 30 years in the business. I had a conversation a couple of years ago with the CEO of a family business, and he had called to ask about his children. And he kept referring to the kids. He kept saying, my kids aren't ready. I want to step down. My kids aren't ready. And finally I said to him, how old are you? He said, I'm 83 years old. And I said, how old are these kids that you're talking about? And he said, well, my oldest is 63 and my youngest is 57. For those young kids to wait until they were in their 60s to take over the business, that's a long wait. And mm, yeah. <laughs> that is a potential drawback to growing up in a family business and waiting your turn, so to speak.
0: Just to agree with Matt, so 25 years is your tenure in our business as a chief executive. We regard prime time as 28 to 58. So that gives a window of opportunity that has got A lot of knowledge and a lot of experience in it all the way through. So we have the early life component. Then we've got prime time, which is we'd love you to be in the business. And then you move on to a different part of the structure. But I think that Matt's point illustrates mine, that the key thing is you've got to have the structures for people to go somewhere. Otherwise, if there's only one board, they want to stay in it in our business you've got the exec board which runs the business the holdings board which looks at the culture and has discussions with the exec board and then you've got the family group that says this is the kind of business we want but the other thing in our family that we try to do is i don't believe in taking the children to the business i believe in taking the business to the children so they're just part of an organization called us But they don't have to do what we do we would just like to give them entrepreneurial assistance maybe financial assistance to start their dream the worst thing we could have is somebody in our business because they're a member of our family and they hate what we do they will be really bad at it.
1: (laughs) Brilliant. Um, I want to continue, though, with this idea of having a structure in a family business. If there are any first generation, second, third, fourth, how do you develop that structure in your family business? Maybe Nick and Matt, you can talk about frameworks you use or could use to apply a sense of structure in your business?
0: Fascinating question. So first thing, maybe amusingly, is a, a simple chart I use a lot which has got one aspect going up, which is called wisdom, and another aspect going down, which is called energy. And uh, <laughs> you know, there are really good people you can get in to help you run your business if you're suffering from what is uh, called DNA exhaustion. So once you're a shareholder, you need to behave like a shareholder and delegate the running of the business to people who want to run it, whether they're family or not family. Three circles which overlap are family workers, family non-workers and non-family workers. Okay. And getting those three together in harmony is what one's got to do. So, you know, having a harmony between an 80-year-old and a 25-year-old might be not the easiest game in town, but it, it is if you're open about it and attending family meetings and you get it.
1: And I think that applies to any business, not just family business, but the exacerbation of some of the issues that we might want to bring out in a family business, is that if you have got someone who's stuck in their ways, then that can block some of the things that then keep that business fresh, new, um, innovating, which we all need to do if we're going to stay relevant in business as well as relevant personally. What does the research say to us, Matt, that you've been doing?
2: So I think it's this balance between what we like to call legacy, which is the history and the values and The core of what the family is, what brought it to where it is. And then the idea of entrepreneurship and renewal and innovation on the other side. And I think the key is balancing those two. You don't want to lose the core, the core values, what brought that business to be. But at the same time, you want to embrace the potential for the future. And when it comes to the next generation, obviously those younger members, they have things to contribute. And sometimes it's that they view the market in a unique way. Sometimes it's that they're more engaged with the technologies or the trends that are coming rather than those that are going. But the key is allowing them to come and make their spot within the business. And I think that's a tough thing for families to balance and let the new guard come to be. And I've seen several different ways for this to happen. In a typical, very traditional family business, the family business stays what it always is. Next generation members need to make a decision Are they going to join with that business and do what that business does or not? But in the more successful multi-generation family businesses, what I'm seeing is a willingness to expand or change the family business to meet the needs of the next generation. Mm. So in the case of a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew who comes to the owners and says, you know, I'm not really interested in manufacturing, but I have a passion about technology. And that's a decision point for the family to say, do we turn to that person and then say, well, if there's no interest in manufacturing, there's no place here for you? Or do we take and leverage the capabilities of the business to help that next generation member see what opportunities might be available in technology? And when you look at long-lived family businesses, very often what you'll see is that where they started does not even resemble where they are today. And I think that's a great example of families being willing to adapt, not just to changing market conditions, but to changing interests of the family itself.
1: And I guess that's what you were talking to earlier, Nick, the fact that Linny brings the business to the family and then supports them in whatever way. And how from a bookshop, you become a digital marketing business.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that's going to pinch one of my favorite statements I've heard. The idea is to pass on the fire, not worship the ashes. And I think it's an absolutely brilliant statement.
1: So you're both talking about to keep the family business alive, you need to keep progressing and work to a certain extent, at least harmoniously with other family members. However, I do realise that's great in theory, but sometimes there might be some tensions maybe, and you need to address those tensions and frictions in the business, which is something that Matt, you in your work at Babson have looked at and you're currently advising on. That is trying to work out how to deal with the tensions in a way that's helpful and constructive to family business members. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Absolutely. Happy to talk about that. And I'm going to go backwards just a little bit to Nick's comment about availability of advisors over history. And it really has proliferated in the last few years. I think what we have seen historically is advisors who want to treat family businesses like every other business. And so you would come as a family business to an advisor and you would say, help me. And they would come in and they would focus on the business. And so the focus would be on strategies and markets and everything related to the business. But what we've seen more recently is a recognition that the family plays a significant role in the business. And what we're seeing now is a recognition taking that even a little bit further and saying, Within a family business, if we want to be successful, the family needs to become the primary focus. And so what I'm finding most useful is to focus on the family itself and family dynamics, family communication, dealing with conflict, those kinds of things. And for families to be successful, we need something that in the research we call family functioning. And what the research is showing is that that requires a tremendous amount of communication and a willingness to embrace things that families often avoid, such as conflict. So I'll just go with that example of conflict quickly. Very often families will look at conflict as a negative and the idea is to drive conflict to zero. If we can drive conflict to zero, then we're a happy, harmonious family. But the most successful families are families that are able to embrace conflict and talk about their differences. And actually, if you think about parents and children that they're able to say, oh, that's interesting that you see things this way. Let me tell you how I see things. And they may never come to an agreement on that, but there's a recognition and an understanding that in the room or at the dinner table, there are multiple viewpoints. And to the extent that we're able to embrace or at least acknowledge those viewpoints, we're going to be successful as a family. So that's what I've been focused on over the last several years.
0: What the family's got to do is it has to get used to what we call constructive friction, because that's where a lot of the new ideas come from.
1: So it may not be harmonious. There will be disagreements. But as long as you communicate, apply a structure to your business, working out those disagreements and different mindsets or ideas in your business, in the long run, you can change and improve your enterprise for the good. But sadly, that's all we have time for today. It's been so interesting to discuss the ins and outs of family business with you both. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for listening. I'm Diana Pasek-Atkinson, and you've been listening to The Octopus of Enterprise. Bye. (laughs)